Amen. I love that fellowship time and um, excited to see you all here today. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11. But before we get into the text, um, just by way of introduction, I want to bring up and ask, do you all remember, how many of you, raise your hand if you've been on a roller coaster before, I'm assuming many of us, okay, good. Um, I remember my first roller coaster was down in Elitch Gardens, it used to be a Six Flags, and then I think it got downgraded to a Three Flags or something like that, but um, back in eighth grade, it wasn't that bad, so um, Twister 2 was that white wooden roller coaster down in Elitch Gardens, and the first time I went on that one, um, my friend Jeremy was with me. He lost his hat, and then they wouldn't let us climb over the fence to go get it, um, you know, for probably compliance reasons, safety or something like that. So um, I'll never forget it. Twister 2, 3.1 G-forces, um, epic. So I don't ever remember getting nervous before um, a roller coaster. I, we went um, at one point, some friends and I, we went to Cedar Point, Ohio. There's some roller coasters out there. Um, there's another theme park in California that I've been to, and I never really got nervous. Uh, roller coasters to me are pretty exhilarating. So as some of you who know me also know that I wrestled all through, um, started in fifth grade all the way through high school, and then I wrestled for a little college that I went to as well. And so um, estimates, because I don't have them all recorded, but I'm guessing that I've wrestled about a thousand matches. Um, when I was younger, um, we, we were fairly committed to that. You can ask my sister, because um, she had to drive all over the state and all over the country with us. Um, we wrestled all the time. So it'd be like 100 matches a year. Um, and I don't, for those, I don't really remember getting nervous either. Um, never that, like, nervous feeling. But just like a roller coaster, sometimes, um, even if you're not nervous going into it, there's that first drop, you get that gut-wrenching feeling, you know. But for me, that was exhilarating. And I don't really remember being nervous much until um, one particular day. I was in a church down in Westminster and um, in a tuxedo, getting ready for this ceremony. Um, and my friend Jeff looks at me, and he goes, um, are you nervous? And I was like, no, I just feel like I'm about to be sick. So um, as some of you might have guessed, it's about 20 minutes before my wedding. So um, not nervous to marry my wife Erin. Um, God had led us together, and we had worked on that um, relationship a lot. And 13 years later, we've worked on it a lot more now. And um, I know now, looking back, I had a reason to be nervous um, if I had chosen to admit it. Um, God's been good. But there's something about being on the precipice of a big event that can give you that, um, give you those butterflies in your stomach, give you that sense of something big is about to happen. And so right now, here we are. Today is Palm Sunday. It is a week before Easter, and churches all around our city and our country and really all around the world are celebrating this particular Sunday with a familiar text where Jesus goes into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. We call that text the triumphal entry. So as we get into that, um, as we get into this message today, because we're going to do that, um, I just want us to think about the gravity and the weight of what's going to happen. And as we dig into this text, um, I'll give you a preview that it will be a little bit of a roller coaster because we're going to bounce around a lot. 
So I hope you brought your Bibles. If you don't um, have one with you, there's some in the back if you want to grab one. But we're going to be kind of all over Scripture today. But before we do any of that, um, let's start rightly and let us pray again um, before we get into the Word. God, as we sang, we pray that all glory would be given to you from this text, this message today, that as I preach, as I speak, that you would help me to clearly articulate your word. I pray that your spirit would be active and speaking to and revealing your truth to me and to these people that are here with me, that you would be worshiped, that you would be the focal point of our service this morning. May you be praised. Teach us. Sanctify us by your truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mark 11, um, verses 1 through um, 10 are this normal triumphal entry passage. And then verses 11 through really the end of 19, I'm going to read as well. So I'm going to read for quite a bit here. So hang with me, and we're going to read these three paragraphs. Mark 11, verse 1. Now, when they had drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be, ha- shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. That's God's word. So there are two connected topics in this message today. The first is probably obvious. Jesus' kingship is revealed in no uncertain terms. And we're going to spend some time talking about that now. Um, If you're taking notes, point number one is that Jesus is a new kind of king. 
this new kind of king is a bit of a paradox. Jesus is a paradox because he's the only king to actually deserve homage or worship as God. Many kings in history, starting with the pharaohs and the Roman emperors, many of them declared themselves to be, at least in part, if not in whole, deity, and to demand that they be worshipped as gods, gods on earth. Unlike them, they were all liars, unlike them, Jesus was actually God, and he actually deserved that worship. What does the Old Testament say about this Messiah, about Jesus? We are aware that this event in Jerusalem was a fulfillment of prophecy. Um, And then Evan read before we started singing in the call to worship. He read from Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. So turn there with me. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 9. It's um, only about 100 pages back in my Bible because Zechariah is a minor prophet at the end of the Old Testament. But Zechariah lived about 500 years before Jesus. So we're going back quite a ways on a timeline. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Zechariah is prophesying, and this is what he says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. So if you've been with us for a while, you're familiar with a tool that we have here called Seek and See. And it's, in, it's one of these um, bookmarks, just like our abide card, that's on the back table there if you want to grab one. But we use that tool. Nothing's original to this church, um, nothing that we made up, but we just have printed it, made it as a tool so that we can look at Scripture and understand how to, um, how to pull the truth out of it. How do we interpret that? What does it mean for us? How do we apply that? And so one of the first questions that we ask as we look at a text like this is what is, what is the context? Um, it's quite a thing to open up Zechariah to the middle of the book and then just start reading um, and then to assert prophecy fulfilled. So when we look at the context of Zechariah, what, um, what are we looking at? Who is speaking? What's the genre? What is the date? Who is the book being written to? What are they dealing with in that time? So some quick context. Zechariah is in Jerusalem, and he is prophesying to the nation of Israel, specifically to this nation of Judah. And they are working to rebuild the temple and the walls around Jerusalem after the Babylonians had come in and destroyed that city and that temple. Some of them had been deported, and some of them were allowed to stay, and some of them um, were allowed to return. And so these people are stretched between um, basically survival, making food to keep their families alive, but they also want to rebuild God's temple and rebuild their city. The prophet throughout his book is giving warnings about this previous generation and the leaders of God's people because they have been, these leaders specifically, have been unfaithful to Yahweh. And then throughout this prophet, his writings, as well as all the other prophets, there's this promise of hope. If they will repent and obey God, there is a future. And even if they don't repent, God will be faithful to preserve a remnant of people that will repent and will believe in him and will be faithful. And the prophets routinely refer to that day. They speak of this future day. As we read that, we read some of those things are not yet 
happen, there's still future for us here today, and that some of those things we see fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. We talk about that day. So it's in Zechariah 9 that we find this text where the prophet says that they're not always going to be under the foot of the Babylonians. Someday, these nations that have conquered you, that destroyed the temple, that destroyed your cities and took you away, took away your children, someday those countries will be gone. In verse 8, before um, that verse that Evan read and that I just read, no oppressor shall march over them. Your king will come, and this is what he will look like. And then we fast forward back to Mark 11, where Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the back of this donkey. This is what he will look like. Righteous, having salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey. This is where Jesus is once again paradoxical. Because while he's the only king to deserve worship and homage, he did not come with an entourage demanding that. He came in humility, willing to condescend to us, to come down out of his heavenly glory and be human with us. Why a donkey? That's a good question. Unlike um, if you were to come on a horse, this donkey is a symbol of humility. It's a symbol of peace. Not peace with the Roman Empire, which is what many of Jesus' disciples and his followers were really hoping for, that he would make peace for them horizontally. But Jesus instead came to make peace where they most needed it, vertically, peace with God. Humble to be God and to come and live with humanity, humble enough to suffer and to die. That's what we are thinking about this week. As we move into um, looking forward to our Good Friday service, it's going to happen Friday night here at 6 o'clock as we're going to worship and meditate on the fact that Jesus took on himself the weight of all of humanity's sin forever and died, being killed in humanity's greatest crime, the killing of God's son. But he did that willingly. He was humble. And so as we look at these events in Mark 11, something else is paradoxical about Jesus. He knows the prophecy of Zechariah. Specifically, he knows this word, this prophecy regarding a donkey. But what else does Zechariah say about this future coming Messiah? Zechariah 11.13, I'm going to read a couple verses here. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And if you're familiar with the context and um, the story of the Gospels where Judas betrays Jesus, we're, we're reading, we're thinking about that a lot this week. Judas betrays Jesus for the price of 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord says, if you go back to Zechariah, this was a foretelling of what was going to happen. Zechariah is this shepherd because God's people had bad, wicked leaders, and they were taking advantage of the Israelites all the way back in Zechariah. We're talking a couple hundred years before. They're taking advantage of them. And so Zechariah steps in, and he says, I will lead these people. And he gets rid of these other wicked leaders. But then the people themselves don't like Zechariah as a leader either because they reject him. And so he goes and he gets paid the 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord says to him here, 
throw it to the potter. That's the price of a rejected leader. And so Zechariah gets rid of the money, the 30 pieces of silver, just like we see with this narrative with Judas. He gets the 30 pieces of silver, and then ultimately he doesn't use those for anything because he commits suicide. Zechariah 12, verse 10, move it on. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a, over a firstborn. So we see again this point to Jesus being pierced. The one whom his people have pierced him. Zechariah 13, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Again, foretelling this death of Jesus where his followers are then temporarily scattered. And so we see... We keep tracking with the back and forth there between Zechariah and then back to the Gospels and then back to Zechariah. What we see is that Jesus knows this Old Testament text, and he is not just reacting. These things with the donkey um, being killed by the Roman Empire and really at the hands of the, the Israelites, those things are not happening to him. But he's actually orchestrating those things. He's doing it on purpose. It is with grave intentionality that Jesus sends his disciples to procure this donkey, which is a symbol of his kingship identity, of his humility, and the peace that he brings to his people. Jesus knows all of this at the beginning of this Passion Week. He knows that he's about to suffer the final atonement for God's people. So how is Jesus a new kind of king? I have three ways to summarize that. Number one, if you're taking notes, despite his singular worthiness of being called king, he is humble. That's a new kind of king. Number two, he knows all history. Why? Because he was there when it was written. It was God's spirit which moved those prophets to speak of this future Messiah in the way that they did. And number three, he knows the future. He knows what will happen to him, to his people, to his enemies, which is paradoxical because most kings are working to either maintain or establish their dominance. They are working and striving towards re-election. Right? They want to stay on the throne Retain that control that they somehow achieve. Jesus is not worried about himself. His prayer in John 17 is not for his own glory, but for his people. The second point in our text today is probably a little bit less familiar, but equally exciting. And this is why we read an additional couple verses in Mark 11. A new kind of temple. So, as we read in Mark 11, verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, 
he went out to Bethany with the 12. So what is the significance of this? So go back to Mark 11. What you have is Jesus enters Jerusalem. He's on a donkey. They cry, this is our king. And then you see he goes into the temple. He looks around, and then he leaves. And the next day, something strange happens. He curses this fig tree. And you're kind of wondering, like, what does that have to do with anything? And then after that, he goes in and clears out the temple. So how does that all make sense? What's really going on here? What is Mark telling us? I think if we look at this, um, it is helpful to observe and to ask questions about what is the temple. That's the key. This is a new kind of temple that we are at the precipice of seeing start. This might feel like a roller coaster again, but let's step all the way back to the Old Testament and ask ourselves about the temple. What is the temple historically? That's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the Old Testament temple. The first place that this temple started was the tabernacle, right? It's this tent that they carried around with them with the Israelites as they traveled throughout the wilderness. But before that, there was another temple. And without spending a ton of time on this, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures, you find that the purpose of the temple is a dwelling place so that God can dwell with man. So what am I talking about when I say that that was even before the tabernacle? It was in the Garden of Eden. Before sin came in and corrupted the world, there was a place that God created that was good, where God dwelt with man. Adam and Eve were commissioned to take this garden and be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. They were to cover the earth with children and this whole fruitfulness. And it was beautiful. It didn't take them long to where that um, garden was ruined. And we don't really see another temple environment like that until in the future. If you go all the way to the other side of the Bible, at the end of Revelation, we see this place called the New Jerusalem, which looks a lot like the Garden of Eden. It's this mirror of this perfect place where there's not just two people. It's not just this small place, but there's this big place where God is with humans, and it's in perfect order. So how does this progress throughout Scripture? Well, going all the way back, we see the Garden of Eden. There's this perfect temple place. Adam and Eve break the one rule that they were given. They are evicted from that temple, and everything's changed. And then there's some major events. There's Noah's flood, and then Abraham is picked out of all humanity to be this representative of what God's people are supposed to look like. Um, and then through Joseph, through this famine, Joseph saves his people by taking them all down into Egypt. And then they are um, in slavery down there. And Moses, um, we're reviewing like the whole Old Testament, <laughs> right? And then Moses ushers them out of Egypt. God um, sends plagues to Egypt and they let them go. And what do they give them on the way out? It's almost like there's like God has a plan in place for this, Right. They give them, as they're leaving, they're packing up their bags. They're about, the Egyptians are so sick of the plagues, they're going to let their people leave. And um, God talks to Moses, and Moses tells them, hey, on your way out, ask them for all of their gold and their riches and their silver. And the Egyptians are like, have it. 
take it. If you're leaving, you can have everything. And Because so, you're wondering, where do they get all this gold to build the tabernacle and all these things in the wilderness? Well, on the way out the door, um, the Egyptians just gave it to them. And so they have all this wealth and riches as they move out. And the tabernacle is built. And we read in 1 Samuel, and we read in Exodus, how the tabernacle is this place where the glory of God fills. And then in 1 Samuel 4, the beginning of this book, something changes. There is sin, and the Ark of the Covenant gets taken as a result of Israel's sin, and the glory of God departs. And there's this priest named Phineas. He's a wicked man. His wife has a baby, and she names this baby Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. Unfortunate for that child, right? So, um, not, a, not a great name, and, and the, meaning is, the meaning is even worse than the sound of the name. Okay? The glory of the Lord is, how would you, I mean, we can, we will, we'll move on, right? Unlucky. So the next installment of the temple being filled with God's glory is after David comes on the scene, and he is this, there's hope there. Now we finally get a king, and maybe this is the king, maybe this is the one who's going to do all these things. He's going to fix everything. And David conquers. They have victory over their enemies. David's a guy who has a heart that looks like God's heart. Familiar with that story? And like towards the end of his life, David looks and says, man, I have a really nice house, a palace, but God still dwells in a tent. And he wants to build a temple, and God says, no, that's not for you. It's for your son Solomon. So Solomon inherits the peace from his father David, and he builds the first temple. And he builds this temple, and the glory of God comes down and fills it. 1 Kings 8. Make a note. Um, We don't have time today. When the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So Solomon's temple is built. It lasts for about 400 years. God's people are characteristically, um, you know, faithful intermittently. And so some of them are good and some are bad, and, and that's, the, um, that's the Old Testament story. And then the Babylonians, God does um, some miraculous rescues so that Judah, Jerusalem, is not totally destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. But then the Babylonians come in, and they flatten Jerusalem. They destroy the city. They destroy this first temple. It's already been stripped of a lot of its wealth from Assyria. Um, It's not looking good. There's irony in the Babylonian destruction of this temple. And that is because... um, the Tower of Babel, these two ideas. Babylonians, not the same exact company, uh, country because there's hundreds of years in between, but the same area. Babel, the Tower of Babel and the Babylonians, these ideas are connected. The Tower of Babel, going all, now we're going back to Genesis 11, okay, was the opposite. It was opposed to God's plan for creation. God intended to come down and dwell with man. And in the Tower of Babel, as you read that narrative, Man's plan was that we're going to build a tower tall enough, and we are going to ascend to God, and then we can be like God. And it is that spirit of Babel 
in the Babylonians that comes in and it crushes the temple and lays it flat. In the Babylonian captivity, now we're caught up to Zechariah. Some of these Jews are returning, trying to survive, but they're working to rebuild this temple. And this catches us up to where Jesus is thinking. He's thinking of this prophecy of Zechariah as he observes these temple activities. And he sees the same thing that happened in Zechariah. Leaders that are in Zechariah that are not good leaders. And they're taking advantage of the people. And the same thing 400 years later, Jesus sees. People that are taking advantage. Instead of the temple being a place, this rebuilt place where people could come to worship the Lord, all nations, and pray. Instead, what is happening is that we see the leaders making it into a marketplace, a place where they can sell doves and pigeons and sacrifices. And they're trying not to facilitate worship, but they're trying to make money. And Jesus is angry about that, rightfully so. And so what is this new temple? Jesus is looking at this a week before his death, before his final atonement, and he looks at this fig tree and says, Your time is done. You will never have fruit again. And he's pointing to these two realities, that the temple, the necessity of the temple is done. There is now a new temple. So you might wrinkle your eyebrows at that or not know what I'm talking about. That's okay. Let me prove it to you. More verses. Ephesians 2. I'm going to read these. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. This is the Apostle Paul talking about this new temple, this church. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is cornerstone imagery that Paul's talking about. This is, a, this is like um, the cornerstone of a temple, of this thing that's being built in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy And you are that temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And in 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So when did God's glory fill this new temple? In Acts chapter 2, we see that quite clearly. Um, We're not going to go there today, but Jason preached a message on Acts chapter 2 back in the fall of um, 21. So if you would like to dig into that, I recommend, or if you don't remember it, um, like probably most of us, um, not because it wasn't memorable, sorry, but, um, but because it's been a while, 
Go back and listen to that. We see God's spirit come down and fill this new temple, this church. So now the glory of, go, the glory of God no longer is shining intermittently in this place over in Palestine. It's no longer coming out of this um, brick-and-mortar temple way over there, but it is covering the globe. A few weeks ago in John 4, we saw Jesus stand and talk to this woman, and he promised her living water. I will give you living water. And not only would that living water satisfy her, but he also said it will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's also going to be a source of God's spirit. The believer indwelt by God's spirit is a source of spiritual blessing for all that are around them. And so now we have this temple that is indestructible, that is covering the globe in all believers, in God's big church. God is building his church, and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. The old temple is no longer needed, no more animal sacrifices. We have Christ, the perfect and final sacrifice, which has changed the temple reality from a place now to a people. So three thoughts in conclusion as we summarize. This new temple, the church, is forever, and it cannot be destroyed. This new temple, the church, it cannot be overfilled. Amen? So we're all sitting in here. If you're as warm as I am, I'm, it's hot up here. I don't know if it's hot down there. This new temple, the church, its gates are open wide. God is welcoming all sorts of people into his temple. There's no longer these restrictions of the court of the Gentiles and then for the court of the women where there's these, um, all these divisions. But the doors to God's kingdom in his temple are wide open. So thank you for hanging with us through that roller coaster of a, of a message as we bounced all over from Mark back to Zechariah, Genesis. Then we talked about the New Jerusalem for a second and then back to the Old Testament. Um, it is a privilege to worship with people who love the book like you all do. So what are we going to do with this? A new king and a new temple. Over the last four weeks, we've reviewed, Jason's been preaching throughout March, on our church's calling and culture. What is our vision for this church specifically? But what's our vision for the church? And we um, kind of organized it with this BUILD acronym, B-U-I-L-D. It's not an annual review. It's actually something we want to use. It's a, um, something we want to be actionable. We believe that we want to be God's people, under God's rule, in God's presence, led by God's spirit, doing God's work. That's what we believe. Habakkuk 2.14 talks about, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So I think about this build acronym. I think about the letter U, under God's rule. Jesus is this perfect king. He's perfecting his kingdom, sanctifying the church. How? And he's doing that through the word. This is what Jesus prayed before his death for his people. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So if you remember Jason's message a few weeks ago, he spoke of being under God's rule, 
as treasuring God's word and transformed by God's truth. That is a new way to live. What does God's word say to us today? So I have two applications from this text, and then we'll move into the Lord's Supper. First, we read clearly that Jesus is passionate that his temple should be a house of prayer. That was his critique of the temple, that they had taken what should have been a house of prayer and made it this for-profit venture, taking advantage of people. Misplaced priorities. And I, I'll tell you that I've been convicted of this in the last um, couple weeks. Jason preached on prayer. There was an application of that a few weeks ago. Maybe that's what kicked it off. I don't know. But I'm just, I'm convicted. Because when I have something to do, I, I'm a, um, I probably was lazy as a kid, but I think my dad, you know, whooped it out of me. So thank God for that. But, like, I tend to just get to work. And all of my efforts and all of my striving and studying and sweat and all those things barely moves the needle compared to just a little bit of God's effort. So I've been convicted that I, I ought to be a person whose life is characterized by prayer. Maybe you do too. The second, I think we should have a deep conviction that the victory of God compels us to, letter D, to do God's work. We ought to be busy about the kingdom. Because none of this that happens, even the horrible things that we're looking at here this weekend where Jesus dies, that's awful. But even that was not an accident. God has never been backed into a corner and he was never um, up against the ropes. God used Cyrus, this ancient pagan king, and he says, my servant Cyrus. Even what appears to be God's enemies are working for him. He uses Cyrus to judge his wayward people. God could have abandoned his creation after the fall, but he did not. He could have done things totally differently. So it's not because he lacks capacity or power. It's far easier to destroy than to create. We know that. But we know that God is doing something beautiful with this whole of history, and that includes the minutia of your life and mine, down to those little details. That um, We call it the bewitching hour in our house. Those, that 4 o'clock, 4 to 6 p.m. where the kids go crazy, right? I've heard about it. I haven't experienced it. But you moms know what I'm talking about. Your coworkers, I have coworkers like that too. You know that one coworker that drives you a little sideways? God's using that. Some days I think I am that coworker, just full disclosure. A deep conviction that the victory of God, God is doing something on purpose in your life and in mine. His victory on the, on the cross compels us to join with him in his work. Let us be a church that's engaged in participating with God in his mission for his glory. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. The beauty of its complexity and how it comes together, how you have orchestrated all these details over centuries and millennia that all point to your sovereign control 
and at what you're doing. I pray that we would be a people that love your book, that submit ourselves to it and to its teaching. I pray that you would change us, that we would be sanctified by your truth, and that you would receive all the praise and all the glory. Help us not to take any of that for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.